0: Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. We'll be in Matthew chapter 6. If you would like to follow along with me, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn there. Thank you, Melissa, for leading us in that song. It's one of my favorites. Um, So good. Um, Yeah. God's new humanity is what we've been talking about for the last several weeks. It's a study where we're discovering that Christ came to create in himself A totally new humanity, a new way to live that aligns with the kingdom of heaven, that aligns with God's priorities and his heart. And it's made up of those who have received the spirit of Christ by faith. And in this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is talking about what it looks like to live as part of this new humanity, to live out this life that has been given to us by the grace of Christ through his death and his resurrection and his spirit. And we found so far that we've discovered that um, we are a people who actually embrace our weaknesses. We're not scared of them, but actually it leads us to return repeatedly towards Christ in repentance. And we have inside of us this hunger and thirst for righteousness, this desire inside of us to not run away from God, not be opposed to him like we used to be, But now we've been rewired so that we actually desire intimacy and closeness with God. We've been brought into his family. We're no longer enemies. And this love for him means that we love his law because his law reveals who he is and it's good. And so we don't find ourselves pushing away from it, but we long to obey it. We long to please him. And not just in some ritualistic, outward-only way, but a deep desire inside of us. So we long to obey him and we want to live our lives and we want to live so that the world around us will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And I want to say something, it might be a little hard, but I want to say it as clearly as I possibly can this morning. If you are sitting here and you call yourself a Christian and yet you don't find in your life a growing love for Jesus, meaning he doesn't consume more of your thoughts, more of your affection, more of who you are, you don't have this love for him that is growing. And you don't have inside of you a desire to obey. I didn't say you don't obey him perfectly. I said you don't have a desire inside of you to obey him. And that is not growing. If that's where you are this morning, I just need you to know that you have a very different definition of what it means to be a Christian than the Bible has. And I'm sorry if that feels like I'm kind of coming out of the gate swinging. But my fear is that in a room like this, in a group our size... There are many of us in here who one day will stand before Jesus at Christ's return and will feel really good about all our religious accomplishments and things that we've done. And yet there will be many in that day that the Lord will look at and say, I don't know you. Lord, don't let that be true of us. We want to know him. Which means that on the other hand, if what you find in yourself is that there is this desire to know God more, There's this growing love for him, that you want to obey him, but yet you actually find yourself very frustrated and oftentimes even discouraged and angry at the reality of sin in your life, that you find that what you want and what you do don't always line up and you fall short. If that grieves you, then you actually should be very encouraged this morning because that's the sign of life. That's the work of the Spirit of God in your life that actually makes you uncomfortable with your sin and actually gives you this desire. And that's what we saw last week. Pastor Bill ended chapter five with this call, which is not just a command, but it's also our desire to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. We have to just pause every time we talk about this because we hear that so wrong so often, that nowhere in scripture does the Bible ever tell us work hard and obey more so that God will love you. Work hard and obey more so you can be saved or be worthy of God's grace. Nowhere does the Bible teach that, but instead it starts with God's initiative, His movement into your life. And when God and His grace come and are a part of your life, they transform you, it changes you. He adopts you as His child, He redeems you, forgives you. And as a result of that, we are called to work out our salvation. Not work for, but to work out because of the salvation that has already come into our lives. We have this desire inside to pursue maturity, to pursue completion, to obey in all things in life, and we fight against sin with the strength and grace that Christ has given us. Listen to the way that Eugene Peterson paraphrases this idea. He says, in a word, what Jesus is saying is grow up. You are kingdom subjects, or in our phrase, you are God's new humanity. Now live like it. Live out your God-created identity Live generously and graciously towards others the way God lives towards you. And that's really what Jesus has been doing throughout this entire Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Is He's been saying, live in light of who you are. Live as this new humanity. Live in the freedom that Christ has won for us. And the passage we're looking at this morning pushes in even further on this idea of obedience. And doesn't it goes beyond the the surface level and actually pushes into the heart of the matter, our motivation. So let's look at what it says, Matthew chapter 6 in verse 1. We'll just read verse 1 to start, and we'll go to the rest of the the verses in a few moments here. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Like I said, before we go into the rest of the chapter, I want to pause because this is really Jesus' main idea. And what he's going to do all the way down through verse 18 is to give us three different examples of what this might look like. But essentially what he says is the exact same three in all same thing in all three different scenarios. Don't practice your righteousness in order to be seen by others. Now notice that Jesus doesn't simply say don't practice your righteousness in front of others because that really wouldn't make sense in light of what we've read recently and actually I referenced earlier where Jesus actually instructs us to live and let our light shine in such a way before others that they may glorify your Father in heaven. But these are two passages that reveal two very different heart motivations, don't they? One comes from a place of wanting to give glory to God And the other with the motivation of wanting to gain glory and approval for yourself. That's what Jesus is really pushing into this morning. Why do you practice your righteousness? That's kind of an odd phrase, right? We don't don't talk that way. Um, So what does he mean? And to explain it, what he's going to do is he's going to address three different topics. He's going to address giving, praying, and fasting. These are things that Christ assumes that his followers do. And this isn't an exhaustive list. You could add to this list. You could add things like serving, attending church, being a part of a a community group or a men's or women's group or spending time reading God's word, being involved in community. All of these things, these are all outward demonstrations of our faith. Spiritual disciplines, you might call them. These are acts of righteousness, practicing our righteousness. And what Jesus is aware of is how easy it is for us to take these really good gifts by which God has given us as a means of which we draw closer to him, to glorify him, to worship him, and and develop intimacy with him. And we can take them and we can very easily manipulate them in a way to use them so that other people actually approve of us. And it's not actually for the Lord, but it's actually in a selfish, selfish interest, wanting to gain the approval of others. He really wants us to press into, why is it that you do these things? These acts of obedience, he says, these acts of righteousness, if they're done for humans, in order to gain their approval, it's a phrase you'll see coming up over and over again, in order to gain their approval or in order to, in order to be seen, if that's our motivation, then actually that's the only reward we're going to get. So let's look at the first example that he gives about Giving. Notice that Jesus starts with the assumption. He's actually not instructing us to give. He's assuming that we already do. He's assuming that his people see our possessions, our money, our time, our energy with open hands, recognizing that we are stewards of them. We are not the owners of anything that we have, that everything that we have comes from God. It still belongs to God. It's to be used for God, and how we use it is in submission to God. And so when Jesus says, when you give, Don't give by announcing it with trumpets. Now, we don't know whether this is some literal uh, ritual that takes place when people would give if there was a trumpet that blasted every time or announcing a need or whatever the... it, It may be physical and literal, or it may be just an idiom that says, don't toot your own horn, right? Some phrase like that. Either way, the point is the same of what Jesus is driving at. He's saying... When you give, when you practice your righteousness, don't draw attention to your giving for the purpose of being honored by others, to receive glory from your fellow men. You realize how easy that is and how tempting that is for us? Maybe it's not giving money because, well, we think it's taboo to talk about money. Unfortunately, actually, Jesus talks a lot about money. Maybe we should be a little more comfortable with it too. Um, But that's not what we're preaching on. Don't go there. (laughs) But maybe it's easier to talk about how we give our time and our energy. You know that moment when you're in a conversation with someone and you just want to slip something in to make sure they know how sacrificial you are and how kind you are and you just in a random comment, this is purely hypothetical, would uh, look at your spouse and make sure that she knows that you unloaded the dishwasher. It has nothing to do with the conversation, but you just want to slip that in so they know because we, we, we want everyone to know how great we are and how, servant, how much of a servant's heart we have. And it's subtle, and it just kind of slips in there. Or we don't want to let someone else miss the opportunity to hear about the good that I've done. And Jesus pushes, and he says, when you give, when you practice your righteousness with the intention, with the goal of gaining glory from someone else, he says, that's actually what a hypocrite does. Now, for us, a hypocrite is a very religious term probably because of the way that Jesus used it and how often he does in Matthew. But in Jesus' day, a hypocrite was an actor. It was an average word that referred to an actor. And in, on, the, on the Greek and Roman stage, the actors wouldn't wear makeup. They would have masks, right? You've seen maybe images for a drama play or a, a drama team that has the, the tragedy and the comedy with the smile face and the frowny face, They would use masks as a way to disguise who they are so that who they could be on the outside is different than what is on the inside, who they truly are. And a hypocrite, according to Jesus, was someone who was a spiritual actor who pretended to have piety and religious devotion, and they didn't actually have, but they put it on as a mask in order to gain the applause of their human audience. You realize how tempting that is for us? but it's hollow, it's empty. Where we pretend to be devoted to God in all actuality, all we care about is to be approved of by our peers. Jesus says, as he will, for every one of these examples, if your goal is to be honored and glorified by others in your good works, then that is the full reward that you will receive. Listen to the way that one commentator put it. They were not giving, but buying. They wanted the appraise of men. They paid for it, And they got it. The transaction is ended and they can claim nothing more. Love the way he says that. It's not about giving in that moment. That's a buying of human human praise. By contrast, Jesus says that as part of the new humanity, when we give, we're not to let our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Now... You can take this too far and think that every single thing that you have to do in life has to be 100% anonymous or it doesn't count before God. I mean, that's just not possible, right? But this is an idiom. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand doing is another, doing is another way of saying, don't do it for the purpose of being praised. Don't do it with the purpose of being glorified by someone else. Don't pat yourself on the back, but rather give in secret. Not talking about it, not bringing it up as a way to get praise. And when that happens, when you give in secret, it actually is a guard against this. And it, how, how is someone going to praise you if they don't even know what you did? They can't. In that moment, it becomes this act of worship unto the Lord where you're submitting all your gifts, your own pride and your own desire to be acknowledged to the Lord. It becomes worship. What's amazing is he says, I see you. Over and over again, we're going to see the Father sees what's done in secret and will reward you. Man, I could spend the entire, I could spend the rest of the morning just telling story after story as to how I've seen that lived out in this church. In those of you who are a part of the new humanity, I can say that because I've experienced it. We have received, our families received many gifts over the years that we still don't know who they are from. There are people, there are individuals in this church who are here in the hours of the day when no one else is here doing things like cleaning the toys in the nursery, not because it's their job, but because they want to serve to the Lord and they do it at a time when no one else sees. The only reason I know is because I'm on staff and this is my second house. It's beautiful. If you don't know the joy of giving in secret, you should try it. It's awesome. Jesus continues. Let's look at what he says in beginning in verse 5, talking about prayer. He says, and when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Again, Jesus assumes we pray, but it's how we pray. He says, don't pray like hypocrites. Don't, don't put on a show. Don't act in order to be seen by others. Or don't babble on and on, thinking that the more words or the bigger the words, the more impressed everyone will be with you. And actually, if you read into this a little bit more, there's even this sense of this manipulation of God, that if you can just pray the right way, then God will give you the answers. And he's like, no, that's that's not it. God is not against long prayers. In fact, the expectation is that we would pray continually without ceasing, have constant communion, abiding in him. And it's not about your location. He doesn't He's not saying, don't pray in public. Again, he's he's pushing it on the heart. Why do you pray? Why do you practice your acts of righteousness the way that you do? In order to gain approval or because there is intimacy between you and the Father? Which is why he says to, to, to the new humanity, he says, pray in your room. Pray in private. Close the door. Because it's not about a show. It's about knowing and being with your Father. And we all know how hard it is, how tempting it is to put on a show for other people. By how we live, by what we say. We know the phrases. If you grew up in the church, you're fluent in Christianese, which means you're really good at saying the right things that will make people impressed. How many times do we say things like, oh, I'll be praying for you, with no intention of praying. It just sounds religious. Listen to what a man named Robert Murray McShane says. This this is like forever glued in my mind. He says what a man is on his knees before God that he is and nothing more. Here's what he means by that. You can put it all together on the outside You can put on a good mask, you can put on a good show, you can be the world's best prayer singer, you can be engaged in music, you can be all in on the outside, but that is not who you are. Who you are is who you are in private. Who you are before God. It's the true measure of spiritual maturity is who you are in private. This is integrity. The inside matches the outside. If something does not come from the depths of who you are, but just affects the outside of you, that's a show. That's a mask. So, does your private life match what you want everyone to see publicly? Does your faith first impact you at home before it does out here for all of us to see? Who would your roommate say that you are? Who would your spouse say that you are? Who are you more gracious to? A stranger or your children? Is there genuine intimacy and growing relationship between you and God on your own? Or is that a mask you put on when you're around certain people? See, Jesus has really strong words. He has really strong words in Matthew 15 for this type of posture. And he addresses the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, and he says, you're hypocrites, you're actors. And he quotes Isaiah, and he says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And here's what Jesus is doing. He's saying, I don't want just the external show. I want your heart. I want you. I want the core of who you are. Because if I have your heart, whatever controls your heart, controls everything else, your words, your actions. Man, I heard a pastor say recently in a sermon, he said this, and it just is so good. He says, the enemy will give you your form of religion if he can have your heart. Wow. The enemy will let you put on whatever show you want if he can have your heart, and Jesus says, no, I want your heart. I'm not interested in your empty spirituality. He calls us out of that into intimacy with him. And he goes on his final example. We're going to skip down to verse 16. I know I'm skipping the Lord's Prayer. We're actually going to come back to that uh, next week. Verse 16. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Fortunately, I think for us, sometimes fasting is a lost art, habit. But Jesus actually assumes that his people will fast. In Judaism, there were different types of fasts. There were corporate fasts in which the whole nation on a given day would fast together. And then there were times where individuals would fast for more private reasons, personal reasons perhaps to devote more time to the Lord in prayer over a specific need or something, or as an act of devotion between them and, and, and the Lord, to, to, to fellowship with God in a unique way, or as a mourning or grief or as a sign of repentance. And fasting isn't simply just not eating. It's not like a diet, right? It's abstaining from something that is good, like eating or drinking or a certain activity, in order to train our hearts and develop intimacy with Jesus. And let me give you two examples. Let's say I fast from food. I give up food for a period of time or a certain uh, type of food or something. You know when your stomach starts to growl and you're hungry? Well, the prayer in the heart of fasting is that, Lord, in the same way that my stomach right now is so hungry for food, may I hunger and thirst for you. May I long to be with you in such a real way that I can hear my soul growling. Or imagine you fast from electronic devices. By the way, when you do that, if you put your phone down, which you should, I think we all should, it's a good habit, you realize how often and how quickly you go to your phone even though you had no intention of doing anything, right? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm the only one that has a magnet in my hand for my cell phone. But in the same way, the heart and the prayer of fasting, if you're abstaining from electronic devices is say, Lord, in the way that my hand feels just drawn to this device, and my, I just want just to wanna grab it. Lord, in the same way, may I be drawn to you. With that type of passion, regularity, frequency, fasting becomes this way of, of training our hearts to fellowship and, and, and commune with Christ. And actually, on February 26th uh, is the start of Lent, which I did not grow up knowing anything about. Uh, and many of you did not as well. But Lent is a habit. It's, it's a period of 40 days between February 26th and Good Friday, where the ch- throughout church history, Christians have set aside, they have fasted from something for those 40 days, not Sundays, for those 40 days in order to fellowship with Christ in a more meaningful, intimate way as we prepare our hearts for Easter. And maybe some of you will try that for the first time this year and you'll see exactly what this is like. But either way, Jesus actually assumes that fasting is a regular habit. And so he says, when you fast, don't do it as a show. This is not for other people. Your acts of righteousness are not for other people to be approved of, to, for you to be approved of by other people. It's a means of intimacy between you and your father. When you do that, act normal. Act normal which for Jesus' day would have been putting oil on your head, washing your face. Take a shower. Don't talk about it. Don't make it a thing. It's meant to be an inner expression between you and Christ, not to draw the attention of others and be impressed. And so we've been talking about our motives here. And you realize that this is not a one-time deal, is it? This is an all-the-time Checking motives. Lord, why am I doing what I'm doing? And if we're honest with ourselves, I think we don't really know why. We're kind of confused. Because inside of me, I find this desire that, Lord, I actually want to honor you, I want to praise you, and I want to do these things with you, not for the show of anybody else. And at the same time, I really care what everyone else thinks of me, and I want them to think well of me. I want them to be impressed with how good I am or how whatever I am. And I don't even know, I can't even see clearly into my own heart. So, where Proverbs 16 says that all the ways, all the person's ways seem pure to them, but the motives are weighed by the Lord. And over and over again in this passage in Matthew 6, we've seen that what is done in secret, the Father sees, which is maybe a little scary to you because he sees your motives. He knows why we do what we do. Which means if he sees the depths of our motives, can actually go to him. And we pray things like Psalm 139, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there's an offensive way in me. Test my motives, Lord. I don't want them to be impure. Purify them. Lead me in the way everlasting. Help me. Wash me. Clean my impure motives. That's repentance. Turning to Christ with empty hands saying, Lord, I need you. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't have to be afraid. We've been singing about it the whole morning. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You don't have to be afraid of your impure motives. God already sees them and he loves you. There's no better news than that. That when we go to Christ in our moment of need, we will not be turned away. We'll actually receive mercy and grace in that moment. You might expect the sermon to end with something like this. Don't live for the approval of man. Live for the approval of God. And it sounds really good. It's just missing something. It's missing something really important. It's actually missing the gospel. It's good advice. It's missing good news. What I would want to add to that is live for the approval of God because in Christ, you already have it. You already have it. I learned this, or I saw this in a new way just a little bit before uh, Christmas. Uh, our daughter goes to preschool here, and they had their, uh, what are we gonna call it? Christmas show, play, singing, whatever you wanna call it. And we're sitting in here, and you don't even have to have children to know this. You, if you've been here on a Sunday when the children come up and sing, and you've seen them do their thing up here, they all do the exact same thing when they walk in, right? They come in from wherever they are, And as they're walking, they're looking around the room, and they're not thinking, oh, look at all these people to impress. Who are they looking for? Mom and dad, right? They don't care about the rest of us. They just want mom and dad. And they find them, and it's adorable, because they do the exact same thing, every single one of them, right? (laughs) Just the frantic waving for like a good three minutes. Mom and dad are like, I've waved back, (laughs) So, what, but what's mom and dad's attitude in that moment? When they're sitting out there, they're crossing their arms, well, let's see how good this is <laughs> before we decide whether we are, uh, yeah, well, might not be uh, up to par here, so let's sit back and see. No, no, mom and dad got their iPhones out and they're smiling ear to ear. Every one of us has our iPhones out, Right? No, not Android, Apple, iPhone's (laughs) out. They've all got their phones out, we'll go neutral, phones, and they're all recording. And they're all smiling ear to ear. And what's amazing is the more secure a child is in that moment, the more secure they are that they already have their parents' approval before they even sang a note. The kids don't even sing yet, and mom and dad have their phones out and they're smiling. And the more secure that a child is in that, the more they sing with reckless abandon. They don't even sing anymore. They shout. You all know it. There's those couple kids that just scream the lyrics out to the song. They may or may not be mine. It doesn't even matter how good they sing. They're free. They're free to sing. Friends, this is the gospel. That in Christ, your father has already spoken what he thinks about you. You have the Father's approval. How? How can that be true? When if if what we just said is true, that God sees me, and he knows all the things that are secret, how can it be true that he can look at me and smile? that's where the cross comes in. We sang the very first song that we sang this morning, What Wondrous Love is This, it captures this idea. It says, when I was sinking down beneath God's righteous frown, Christ laid aside his crown for my soul. And what happened is that the cross, the only one who heard this phrase, this is my son whom I love and I am with him I am well pleased, the only one who heard that from the Father, Jesus, hung in judgment, bearing on him the sin, which includes our impure motives. He hung in judgment. And in that moment, hanging on the cross, he looks up towards his father because in that moment of suffering, he needs his dad's smile. He needs to hear his father's words and say, I love you, my son. But what does he hear? He hears nothing. He sees Nothing. And he cries out in agony, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer, Jesus was forsaken so that you can be free, so that he can look out at you because you've been united with Christ by faith. This is now true of you. That's my son. That's my daughter. And I love them and with them I am well pleased. Friends, in the gospel, you find the freedom, the freedom from needing to gain the approval of others. Because in Christ, you already have the approval of the God of the universe, which is what your soul is longing for the entire time. You are free. You're free to sing. You're free to scream the words. You're free to serve. You're free to give. You're free to pray. You're free to read scripture. You're free to attend groups and community groups. You're free because you have your Father's smile. May we live in that freedom that the Lord of the universe smiles and he sings over you as his child. May that free us this week to live radically gracious lives of generosity and service in front of others or not or in secret so that those who may see our good deeds would glorify our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Father, what wondrous love is this that you would bear the curse for us, that you would take the judgment due for our sin, for our impure motives and that you would trade places with us so that by grace we hear the words, this is my son, this is my daughter whom I love. With them I am pleased. Lord, would that free us to serve, to live, to give without needing the approval of others because we already have your smile. Lord, purify our hearts, purify our motives. Make us a people that are eager to serve, to give because you have given to us and you've changed us. We love you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.